Este es el Tribunal de los Supergüeyes, entrevista especial, Death of Superman Lives, What Happened. De todos los confines cósmicos del universo, se reúnen con papas y cheles las más poderosas fuerzas del bien que se hayan visto. Pedro Ajaz, Tavo Duarte, Chucho y Mario Panini. Todos dedicados a luchar por la paz y la justicia de la humanidad y hablar un rato de cómics también. Bueno, pues, ¿qué creen? Estoy aquí con la productora y el director de La Muerte de Superman Vive, Death of Superman Lives, What Happened. Eh, estamos conectados por Skype. Eh, y pues a partir de este punto vamos a seguir hablando en inglés y vamos a comenzar con interpretación. Ya saben, va a ser traducido. Pueden escucharlo con traducción, pueden escucharlo sin traducción. Subiremos las dos versiones. Estoy con John Schnepp y con Holly Payne. How are you, Holly? How are you, John? Thank you very much for We're your good. time. We're very good. Glad to be with you. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. I don't know if you've had any other Mexican interviewers. Not Mexican, no. We've had Spanish, but not Mexican. We've uh, done Spain. We've done uh, Argentina. Um, but this is first for Mexico. Yeah, we've talked to a bunch of uh, different people. Uh, from Mexico who wanted us to come down and maybe show the film there or also do an interview, but unfortunately they were uh, coming at us while we were at San Diego Comic-Con, so it was, very, it was very hectic and difficult to organize or commit to any kind of interviews. So, Yeah, I, I imagine. Uh, so uh, are you distributing the documentary here in Mexico? Um, not right now, but we will be. I mean... Honestly, anyone in, who lives in Mexico or anywhere around the world can actually order the documentary by going to our website, which is www.tdoslwh.com. If anyone across the entire planet goes to our website, they could either purchase a digital download where they could instantly watch the movie and or any of the special features immediately by either streaming or downloading it, or they can place an order for a Blu-ray or a DVD. So those are all things that they could do right this second. So it's all available right now. We're actually thinking about entering uh, a bigger, a larger distribution deal with several different companies, but nothing is, uh, you know, signed off on right now. Oh, no, and that's, that's quite enough for us because actually here we buy a lot of comics uh, from Comixology and from all the digital services because, as you may imagine, Uh, distribution is a little limited here in Mexico for many of geek of the geek things that we like. Uh, so <laughs> digital is is quite an amazing thing for us. Yes, and it's fast. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's great, and and we truly appreciate your having that that availability for your documentary. So, uh, how I, I want I'd like to know a little about your bio, your background, John. And I see that you've directed 
other documentaries or is it movies? Well, actually, my, my background is more so in uh, directing for cartoons and animation. I've been doing that for 15 years. Uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the Adult Swim uh, animated cartoons like Metalocalypse or Venture Brothers pretty much what I'm really well known for in the directing category. I have directed uh, live action uh, uh, comedy shows like I directed the pilot for the Upright Citizens Brigade many years back. And most recently, I just uh, directed a, a segment for the ABCs of Death, which uh, is a, 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 a hard R or possibly unrated uh, horror film, an anthology series, where uh, there's 26 different directors all picked a letter from the alphabet and uh, did a short film. So I was very happy to be involved in that. This is actually my first documentary, especially a feature-length documentary that I've, uh, I've worked on. I've edited some documentaries in the past, but this is the first one that I ran you know, myself to the interest of mine. So. And are you guys fans of Superman? Do you, do you read the comics? Yeah, for years I, I did read the Super, uh, Superman comic book. Uh, I think... More so when I was a lot younger, I was reading uh, The Revitalization of Superman by John Byrne. Oh, uh, wonderful. over and redid that in the late 80s. And I read his entire run and, and kind of followed uh, intermittent, you know, in, like I followed Grant Morrison's run on Superman. Uh, usually it, was, it had to be one, a writer that I was interested in. And then I would follow their, uh, their run on the Superman character. But, uh, you know, I've... I've uh, I've been a fan of uh, Superman since I was a little kid, him and Batman, obviously, uh, from the DC world. I was more of a Marvel guy when I was younger, but as I got older, uh, you know, DC really started turning it around with Watchmen and Dark Knight, and a lot of their, uh, their little more risk-taking went a little darker than, say, Marvel would back in the 80s and early 90s, and that is now how, uh, kind of how they're working in the uh, cinematic world. Marvel's a little lighter, DC's a little darker. Holly, how about you? Uh, well, personally, I wasn't the comics fan that John was, but um, but I started watching the Superman films when I was very young and was hypnotized by those. So that's where my first spark of interest came with Superman. Um, and, of course, you know, there was a big gap of time where we didn't get to see any Superman films uh, for a while. Um, uh, and then the, you know, I mean, I wasn't following the Superman comics. I was way more a Batman fan than Superman and more of the underground comic scene. But uh, but I do remember going to see Superman Returns with John back when that came out and uh, both of us being really, really bored in the theater. <laughs> I remember John falling asleep, actually. Had to wake him up twice. Um, but, uh, but it was, uh, yeah, I would say that my interest really got started again once, we, once I learned of John's interest in the Superman Lives script and the concept art, and learning that Nicolas Cage was going to be playing Superman at one time, and that just kind of broke my brain open, and I was like, this is amazing and fascinating, and um, so I was more interested in Superman from that perspective than, than as a comics fan. Yeah, it was almost funny, I mean, as a comics fan, to watch your documentary and see the third uh, screenwriter say that uh, Superman, as if he had discovered something amazing that Superman is from a different world and Superman doesn't have personal issues and doesn't have personal problems. And after, I guess he didn't read John Byron's revitalization of, it, of the character, don't you think? Right. Yeah. <laughs> those, those are the things where you just let, you let people talk and you're like, you know, I was, 
was trying not to interject my own opinions uh, when I was interviewing uh, all of the people that I was interviewing. And, uh, you know, as, as a comic book nerd, I always try to remember that we're like a very small percentage uh, of the entire planet. Uh, most people don't read comics. And, uh, you know, so I'm not going to cast any judgment on people just because they might not be hyper aware of issue 332 from Superman, you know, the redone <laughs> thing with when Parasite absorbed part of Captain. his brain. Oh, when my Parasite, God. You know, absorbed part fact, of his brain. He remember this and that, so. Yeah. You know. The fact, the, the fact that, that you have to say in your documentary that Superman at one time had long hair, had long hair, that, that's, that, that was very funny for me because I felt actually very, very old because uh, for me that's something that, who doesn't know that? No, a lot of, I know, but that's a shocking thing is most people yeah. don't know it. In fact, most people think oh that uh, those God. pictures of, uh, of Nicolas Cage with the long hair was Tim Burton's idea. And it's like, Well, actually, it comes from uh, over 20 years ago. It's called a fucking comic book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, here's the thing. I, it was funny, but I, I don't read Superman comics, but I, I knew that, and I didn't understand the, when people didn't get that, when we started hearing flack about that when this, this documentary was first announced, the, the fact that people, nerds, didn't even realize that that was, the, that was what was happening in the 90s. Yeah. Of course, I remember the 90s really well, so that was just odd to me that people didn't get that. I still have that that poster of by Dan Jurgens, uh, uh, Superman. Which one? Uh, the one that at the end of the whole uh, Superman died, Superman returns, four Supermans and all. When Superman comes out with the with the long hair. Oh uh, right! Uh, yeah, that, that one's that's the one that comes to mind. But well, how, how, uh, talking specifically about your documentary. Um, how did the idea? How did the idea come up? Uh, was it because of uh, Kevin Smith's popularity, telling that giant spider story in, no. in YouTube? No, actually, I mean the idea really came about, um, suggested to me by other friends of mine. Uh, Holly and I were coming off of uh, you know seeing a show over at uh, Meltdown, which is a comic book store here in LA in Hollywood, and. Uh, Uh, I had ended up running into Steve Johnson, not running into me, sitting right across from me, and some people introduced me because uh, they thought we should know each other. Uh, like, I was directing Metalocalypse at the time, and he's really well-known as the creator of Slimer, so they introduced us, and that's when I was like, he looks familiar. I Googled him. Then I realized he's the guy who made those Superman suits. I talked to him about that, and he didn't want to talk to me, so we went out to have a dinner after the show that we were at, and um, we were talking with our, with our friends, And I mentioned to them that I had been, you know, collecting the concept art in a little folder and that uh, I was just interested in this weird version of Superman. And, and everyone at the table, as I explained what these light-up suits look like, and everyone seemed pretty interested in it, and enough so that one person suggested I do a documentary and the other person suggested, why don't you try raising money on Kickstarter to make it? Because I had just done a very successful Kickstarter to, to do an animated cartoon the year before. So... That's kind of where the idea uh, was born, but not even by me, by other people suggesting to me that I do that. And I told them, no, I'm not interested in doing anything. I haven't made a documentary, so I don't do that kind of stuff. But then over the course of the next several few weeks, I started, I looked, I opened my folder of art that I had collected and uh, just started thinking about it. And I was like, well, no one else is going to make this. And anyone I talked to about it, 
aside from that night, kind of like looked at it like, wow, what a train wreck or that would have been, or what a bullet we dodged <laughs> with that one. And, and I really truly felt that it would have been something different. It wouldn't have been a train wreck. It wouldn't have been dodging a bullet. It would have actually been, I think, something very special and a unique take on a superhero character that we hadn't seen before. Uh, and it was from Kevin Smith's script. It was also from reading Dan Gil- Gilroy's script. But very little was actually online at the time in 2012 when I was thinking about, you know, maybe trying to do something with this. And come January 2013, I launched the Kickstarter and uh, news of it went around the globe. We uh, we raised our money that we were initially looking for and then uh, realized it's going to take a lot longer to actually make this because uh, unlike the the scripts that I would direct in my previous like 15 years of doing professional work, doing a documentary, you don't have really any control over your subject matter. If they want to do the interview, they'll say yes, and if they don't, they will say no, and that's it. So I found that I had to become somewhat persistent in uh, returning phone calls and returning emails to people who originally said no. And, uh, and then also like being, you know, following through with a lot of different leads that might have seemed to have gone nowhere. But so anyway, that's kind of how that whole thing started. Yeah. And, and talking about that, you, you present on your, on your documentary, you present four main figures, let's say, which is John Peters, Kevin Smith, Nicholas Cage, and Tim Burton. Um, how difficult was it? to get these interviews, especially I saw that Nicolas Cage did only some kind of voiceover at the end of the, of the documentary. Uh, but how, how hard was it to get in Tim Burton's house, no less? How was it? Well, first of all, I want to clarify that the uh, Nicolas Cage um, voiceover, as you said, is actually from an excerpt from... Uh, press junket he did for um, the Crudes back when he was doing junket a uh, junket for the Crudes. We actually used that audio from that junket, and then um, had the costume test footage playing uh, under it. So that uh, that wasn't a specific you know interview with Nicolas Cage that we got. That was from other footage. But um, getting Tim Burton, I'll let John tell you that story. Right. Well, yeah, uh, like Holly was saying, uh, uh, Nicolas Cage uh, declined to be interviewed for our film. And uh, just recently, he's uh, kind of restated something that he said back in 2013, right when I started the Kickstarter. It's very similar. He felt it was would have been a win-win situation. The film doesn't have to be made because we have it in our imagination. And he really respects Tim. Basically, the same stuff that he said almost three years ago. So we kind of understand where he feels about well, how he feels about the film. Uh, Tim Burton actually was one of the hardest people to get, and lucky enough, uh, I was able to get in contact with his executive producer, Derek Fry, through a, a fun chain of events. A person who was working across from where they were shooting sent me an email and said, you can talk to this person. I sent a very nice email. That was forwarded to Derek. A few months later, I ended up talking to Derek. He asked me how long I could wait. I said, forever. So another five <laughs> months passed. He said, Tim's very busy, but he'd like to talk to you maybe in a few months, a few months passed. Then he said, hey, how about he's feeling like he'd like to meet you. So Holly and I ended up flying out to London uh, four months after that. So in, in total, we had to wait nine months because he's a very busy guy. So he just wanted to meet us. 
Uh, we met with him at his house, and then, like, after talking with both of us for about 10 minutes, he agreed to do the interview, and we came back two days later and shot the interview at his house, and he was an incredible guy, great interview. The other thing that I want to make, make sure we make mention of is um, the help that we received from his executive producer, Derek Fry, who is also in the film. Um, Derek was actually the person who 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 engaged John Schnepp about, the, uh, about actually coming out there to meet Tim Burton. Um, and he's been a huge help in getting the archival footage and the access to the concept art. All of that came through pretty much directly because of Derek's um, assistance. So I want to make sure that he's mentioned on that. Right. Well, no, I, and it's an amazing interview because Tim Burton opens up completely about the movie and he shows his frustration, especially, that is quite evident. He even says at the end, I love that after credits. Uh, obviously, this is for people that saw the, the, the documentary. That's what I said in Spanish at the beginning, that you have to see right. the documentary before listening to this. But, um, but he says, hey, I, it's 2014 and I'm still working on this, right? So uh, you can see his frustration. You can see how Tim Burton wanted to do this movie. Well, it's got to be, uh, I, I uh, definitely feel uh, the frustration. I've worked on some pilots. And when you work on something and it it's never feels like it's never completed, he worked on this for roughly two years. So I, I can't, can barely imagine the kind of levels of frustration after you're like, Pretty basically, he said in other interviews, he said, you know, I basically made the movie, we just forgot to film it. So it's something, he didn't say that to me in our, doc, in our interview, but it's something that you feel comes through when he's talking about it. It's literally doing all this creative work and thought and uh, the process of coming up with a, a unique take on this character and putting a new spin on it, because that's what they wanted to do. They were looking to, how do we get past the uh, Superman from Superman Quest for Peace How do we put a brand new spin on this franchise and give it its unique new take? So, so uh, Tim Burton had done that with Batman. So I, I really truly feel he would have done something very unique and special with Superman. Now, talking about that, you have uh, you show that the movie had three scripts. First, Kevin right. Smith's. The second, I don't remember the well. The, Wesley the, Strick. Three Wesley Strick. Wesley Strick and Dan Gilroy. Kevin Re Smith, there, Wesley there Strick, go. and Dan Gilroy. Okay, there you go. Now. Obviously, you've read the three scripts. Yes. Which one was the best for you? Well, for me, I don't think any of them were the best. All of them were non-completed scripts. They were like what you would call a first draft. Um, but all of them had their own special, unique takes and interesting elements to them. Um, I don't think any of them... Like, I, like I'm saying, none of them were like, oh, just film Kevin's or just film Wesley's or just film Dan's. I think all of them had elements to them that would have been fun to see on film, but they weren't 100% finished or polished. They weren't ready to go to film uh, right away. So they still need, all three of them needed work. That's one of the things that we come up against quite a bit from fans who've seen the film or just audience members is, you know, when after, after having seen the documentary, they say, now I really want to see Superman lives. Um, the problem inherent with that is that there wasn't any script that was completed enough for them to have seen it, you know? So yeah. it couldn't be made today because there wasn't a complete script even then. So for all the people who are saying, well, I'd love to see that film made now, um, it's, it's, it's a time capsule that can't be, 
uh, repeated. It's not possible to make the film now because you would need to go back into 1998 when they were making it and finish it then. I mean, so many years have passed, almost over 15 years now, and it's one of those things where when you're making something like a film, a feature film, the process from script to finished edited film is a giant process. So many things change. Actors, producers, rewrites, new scenes are added, scenes are scrapped. I mean, there's so many elements to it that happen. Um, yeah. Now, uh, I, I know that you're both professionals, but being with Tim Burton, didn't you just have to geek out with him completely and tell him, I don't know, ask him about the new Superman movie, what he thought, uh, what he thought about the the uh, other Batman movies, uh, about the Schumacher <laughs> you know, movies. Actually, Did you geek out you know with him? No, that it didn't really ever come up. Um, really, honestly, when we first we were there for one purpose and one purpose only, which was to interview Tim Burton based uh, about Superman Lives. So right. you know, it wasn't it wasn't a time for chit chat and and to talk about other things. But obviously, we're both big Tim Burton fans. But I think the thing that really kind of uh, warmed him to us was the fact that when we When we talked with him even briefly two days prior to interviewing him, we all connected on different aspects of art that we all appreciate. Uh, for me, it was children's illustration. For John, it was, you know, hammer horror films and things like that. So, um, and that, that conversation was literally about 15 minutes. So, um, most of what we talked about with him was based on Superman Lives, but one of the really cool things that John did with Tim after the interview was to talk to him about all of his his films, which is part of the Blu-ray uh, special features, which is basically, you know, a word association where John mentions each one of uh, Tim's films, and Tim reflects very honestly on his take on each one of the films that he's, he's directed. So it's a really kind of golden moment uh, that a lot of people have not had access to with Tim Burton because he doesn't do interviews very often. So it's a real insight into this really amazing visionary director's process and his take on his own creation. And that's on your website, right? It's, uh, no, it's well, you can get it uh, as part of the digital download, the super pack mm -hmm. digital download, but it's also on our Blu-ray. Great. Okay, now, um, about John Peters. Uh, we normally uh, satanize uh, producers, and this guy sounds and... Uh, looks and even people says uh, say he's very disruptive. He's is he really that producer from hell that that he is as he's portrayed by Kevin Smith and or is he really uh, a different kind of guy that enables uh, movies to be made? Well, hey, one I just want to address one thing really quickly about um, the Kevin Smith. Uh, talk about okay. John Peters. Okay. The thing with Kevin Smith is that he's, in, in addition to being a personality and, a, you know, a director and writer in his own right, he's a comedian. And so he's been doing a, you know, a long-term bit about John Peters, which has gotten him a lot of mileage, you know. But that's really, for the most part, what people's perception of John Peters has been. They don't, they have never really known him Uh, apart from that, you know, he's been this name, but there was never a face to put with the name. So this is an amazing opportunity to be able to get John Peters to uh, tell his side of the story. But to be honest, he's 
he's an old school Hollywood producer, um, and he, he's nowhere. He's not crazy at all. He's he's made blockbuster films. He produced Batman, so uh, people can say that he's dis- disruptive and all that stuff. But that's their their engagement with him on the set, you know, or in the art department. But um, but yeah, our take on John Peters is no, he's not crazy. He's got a lot of passion. Yeah, I mean, he, he's made over a hundred movies. I mean, when you meet people who've been in the business for a long period of time, you know, especially in Hollywood, a lot of uh, a lot of things go down in Hollywood. And there's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of sides. Um, but he was a very, a very, a very fun person to talk with. Uh, he's very open about his feelings, and 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 the thing that I my walk away with uh, from talking with him was uh, I felt like I understood where he was coming from. Like, yes, he is the guy who suggested that Brainiac fight some polar bears. But that's because he was coming from that Corman school of thought where it's like every five minutes you need an action scene. or you know, So it's like you got to keep the audience engaged. Uh, yes, he's the guy who suggested that Superman fight a giant spider, but when you see where, where he was coming from, it makes sense because if you look at the previous four Supermans, let's try to not talk about Superman 3 or 4, but um, <laughs> if you just look at them, you see that, oh, it's Superman fighting another person. Yeah, he fought a weird robot in Superman 3, but the less said about that, the better. What John Peters was basically saying, let's come up with something that is super for him to fight, like a titanic giant monster, a beast, not just another dude, because we've already seen that. And what he was trying to do is recreate and rebrand the franchise. So that's why he brought in aliens. He wanted to have the Brainiac skull ship with a whole bunch of other aliens. It's like you could see where he's coming from, but when you talk when you put him and someone like Kevin Smith, who's a comic book nerd in the same room together, it'd be like, look, man, he's got a pantheon of villains to fight. He could be fighting any number of different villains. Why a giant spider? So that's, that's where those uh, uh, disconnects happen. Here's another thing too, about his collaboration with Tim Burton is the fact that he also knew from experience what Tim Burton could take, could bring to all these things, you know? So, um, he, his, take with the menagerie was wow i loved beetlejuice so i can't imagine what i can only imagine the amazing things tim burton is going to come up with with all these monsters you know so he you know he's he's got a larger picture in his brain than just um okay i want this polar bear i want this spider he's thinking about what's going to make the audience cheer and scream and get excited for a long time this movie was a myth for me i mean i knew about it since it was in production since the 90s. We, we've known that this could happen and then nothing happened. Uh, you explain it very, very well, which is a very, uh, I think, not only a speech about Superman lives, but also a speech about, the, about Hollywood in general, how, how Hollywood works. For us outsiders, it's, it's just we watch the movies and that's it, but we don't know. Uh, really that it's a business and that business can kill many creative projects and it's that collision between the creative part and the business part that kills many, many things. But what do you think of the atmosphere today? How open are the uh, Hollywood people uh, about uh, these kind of projects? Do you think Superman Lives would have been done, would have been made today? Uh, absolutely not. I think, you know, you're looking at a time capsule and you said it really eloquently just a little bit earlier. The movie is definitely a larger look at the way just 
giant blockbusters are made and the way Hollywood at that time was functioning, uh, we live in a different world now 15 years later where those kinds of risks that were being taken at that point in time are definitely not looked at as like a good type of risk now. I mean, look at it this way. Superman Lives in 1998 was canceled. I don't think it would have ever even gotten to the drawing board at this point in time. I think the way a lot of uh, superhero films are made nowadays uh, are less are less risk averse. I think what they're doing though is they're they're putting a lot of really talented people on the films. They're getting the screenplays so that they're as close enough to the comic book with enough derivations that it'll appeal to a larger mass audience. So I, it's just a different a different environment right now. Unfortunately, we also have uh, the world of the megaplexes, which you know this was happening since uh, since Jaws and Star Wars came about. We had blockbuster films. Now you have uh, films that open like Transformers 4 where it actually doesn't even have anything to do with the quality level of the film. It basically has to do with name, brand recognition, and how many theaters it's playing in. So, I mean, that's kind of where we're at right now in, in certain terms. I wanted to share an anecdote, too. Um, after uh, the film, after we finished the film and we screened it for some of the people that had worked on Superman Lives, one of those people... Um, is a man named Sylvain Despress, who's one of the concept artists. In fact, he actually asked us to say he was an ex-concept artist. Um, I, I don't know if you'll recall from the documentary, but he's the one who was talking about uh, John Peters fighting a, a shark. Um, <laughs> but in any case, he's also one of the... He, he's, he was kind of one of the more um, dissenting voices as far as um, uh, the production on Superman Lives, saying that it was, you know, basically it's people build up an idea of something, and it's not really ever going to live up to that idea. Um, but he was, after he saw the film, he had a really, at first he had a negative sort of take, but then after seeing the film, he said, you know, I realized after seeing your documentary that we were taking risks back in 1993 that we would never have taken, that we would never take today. So even looking at the concept art and the ideas that were being thrown around for Superman Lives back in 19, 1993, even though he at the time felt like they were conventional and cliche, if you look at them by today's standards, they would be revolutionary or completely groundbreaking. So he was kind of basically recognizing that back in those times, back in, 19, in the 90s, it was um, even a more accepting climate, even though this film didn't get off the ground, it was more, risk was not, as scary as it is today. Yeah, and I think what I really enjoy about the, what we did with this documentary is it's it's okay to take risks because the people who are watching this film now, it's, you know, 15 years later, but most of the people come away and after the film is over, they're like, wow, I really want to see this movie. And why is that? I think it's because it was taking risks. I think it's because it was trying something different. I think it was because it was creatively visionary and different from what we're all expecting Superman to be. I think what we expected Superman to be was Superman Returns, and that's boring. So I think when you get to something where you're actually transforming the characters or the storyline or any kind of adaptation, and you're taking it and making it something new, that's what you try to do when you refresh a, a brand, when you take and a character or a storyline that's been told many, many times over years, over years, you're trying to get a new audience, you're trying to rebrand that franchise, that's what it takes. It takes originality, it takes creativity, it takes making and taking risks. 
And that's what I really like about what the, the everybody involved with Superman Lives were doing. Even though everyone at the time was just doing their job, what it's become now is a little bit different. So when you see that kind of originality crackling through, it's invigorating and it makes you want to see that film. And also, I mean, when you think about the fact that Tim Burton was the one who basically revolutionized Batman for the world, you know, as far as the cinematic oh, yeah. universe is concerned, um, you know, obviously he would have done the same thing with Superman. Him um, and Paul Dini and Bruce Team, I think. Yeah, but to a, a much lesser extent. Once again, you're nerding out. You're talking as a, <laughs> you're talking as a comic book nerd. Nobody on the planet oh, yeah. really knows who Paul Dini is. And maybe a few more people know who Bruce Timm is, and that's only because of recently. Um, yeah. If you go back to 1989, no one knew who they were. And it's like the only reason they made Batman the animated series is because of the success of Tim Burton's Batman. Yeah. So you have to remember this. As, as comic book nerds, all of us knew about the night. We were one one hundred thousandth millionth of the rest of the planet. Everyone else, when they mentioned Batman in 1989 before Tim Burton's movie came out, they thought of Adam West and Biff Bang Pow. And they were all, oh, you mean for little children. That's what the overall world view of Batman was. And that's why when someone like Tim Burton takes that and adapts certain elements of things from the comic books, like the Dark, the Dark Knight Returns, and brings them to a large mass audience, that's what you get. You get a giant hit. Yeah, it's a shame we'll never see Superman Lives or Jodorowsky's Dune, for example, which was also a jewel for, for what I saw. Uh, but what do you think about Man of Steel and Superman versus Batman? I have to ask this question. I'm, I'm I liked Man of Steel. I thought there was a lot of cool things that they tried doing. I'm one of those people who actually liked the, the Krypton origin sequence. I liked them having a giant weird dragonfly creature with jor, jor hanging out, flying around. I liked all that stuff. Why? Because it was different. It wasn't the same Crystal City. I don't need to ever see that again. Bunch of stalagmites and stuff. I'm into at least people trying something different. I thought they did a good job with Man of Steel. Of course, there's a few things that, you know, I would change. Maybe not, you know, the, you know his paw reaching out while there's a tornado. Like, yeah, it's okay, son. The dog survived. And him getting whisked away. Um, maybe I would change the ending with uh, him flying to the other side of the planet and fighting that squid creature. Would have just cut that out. It was unnecessary. But overall... I really like Man of Steel, and I'm actually really excited about what they're trying to do with not only Batman v Superman, but establishing this uh, cinematic universe. Because basically, you know, Zach re recently revealed that he's established this whole cinematic world, and they're building it backwards, so to speak. They already knew what they're going to do with Just League, and they're building that backwards into you know Batman v Superman, all these others. So I myself personally think it's kind of cool what they're doing with the DC universe. Uh, I, just with only Man of Steel, that's the only one I've seen and, or anyone's seen at this point, but at least everything I'm seeing with Suicide Squad, at least it looks interesting and different enough from what Marvel is doing with their characters, so I'm cool with that. So I think it's uh, we've entered the golden age of cinematic uh, movies and television for these characters that we grew up with where they never had a chance in hell to have a movie or a TV series. Now we have not too much of it, I think. I think it's just enough. And it's going to be explored, so it's, it's the next five, ten years are going to be really exciting, and it's, it's cool to be a, a fan of this stuff. Well, guys, I just have to say to you that I really admire you, and uh, your documentary is really entertaining, really informative, and uh, it uh, dissolved a myth for me and for many people that uh, solved a lot of questions, gave us a lot of information, 
And at least in our minds, we have an idea of what Superman Lives would have been. And I do think, after watching the documentary, same as many people that you've mentioned, that it would have been a great film and we would all have loved it. Well, thank you very much. And we're really glad that uh, you're spreading the word in Mexico because uh, it's really nice to know that there are fans out there that appreciate this kind of thing. Yeah, definitely let all, all your friends know that they could uh, buy a digital download and be watching it tonight. Oh, we will. www. Make sure the, the our website is is a is a link on a, if it's a you know a written a written page. Make sure it's a hot link, just so people know that they can immediately buy the film and yeah. see it and enjoy it. So, thank you very much, guys, for your time. Uh, it's yeah. been amazing talking to you, uh, hearing your side of of things. Now you are on the on on Tim Burton's chair, on Kevin Smith's chair. Now you are being interviewed by a lot of people and right. and I think We're that's amazing you you guys deserve it well thank you so much I also wanted to mention that uh, just to stress that this is an independent film we raised our money through crowdsourcing but we're also in debt by spending a lot of money to get this film done the right way so it's really by p other people supporting our film and buying our film at our website is the way they can really help make independent film and films like this continue to go yeah you know jóvenes Pausados con la espiro piquetingueada. Sorry, that was something for the listeners in Spanish. Right on. Right on. <laughs> no, yeah, because here in Mexico, you know, uh, uh, piracy is, is big. And, uh, and we do try to tell people uh, to buy things, in, in, especially when it's something independent and when it's readily available in the Internet such yes. as graphic novels like the sculpture, Scott McCloud's The yeah. Sculpture, and many other things that are readily available. We try to ask people and fuck them if they, if they don't, uh, right. because really, <laughs> they are truly hurting the creators. Yeah, the best, yeah. Thing, the best you could do is let them know. It's like, hey, like, this isn't one of those giant companies that exactly. it's like, oh, everyone's pirating it, but it's just a little very small nuisance. This actually is hurting us, so it's like yeah. anybody who buys it will be helping us. Well, I hope you get a lot of buys from Mexico because of this interview. Thank you so much. <laughs> Appreciate it. Great Thank talking with you. Y bueno, pues esa fue nuestra entrevista con la productora y el director John Schnapp, The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened. Es un documental verdaderamente recomendable. Sí tiene algunas partes en que es... Eh, pues gente hablando, así es que si tienes déficit de atención, créeme que te va a aburrir un poco, pero si estás interesado al menos un poquito en la historia de Superman y en la historia del cine y en cómo se hacen las películas y en qué pasó con esta película en específico de Superman de Tim Burton, creo que este documental es para ti y te va a encantar. Y pues ya saben, jóvenes, escúchenos en tribunaldelosuperhueyes.com y pues pe pe Pedro, pe Pedro... Bueno, pues escúchenos en iTunes Pedro no sabe lo que es iTunes Aunque Pedro no está aquí Pero pues eh, ya saben, escúchenos en iTunes Pónganos sus reviews en iTunes Tavo, Tavo eh, Bueno, tampoco está Tavo aquí Pero pues ya saben, lean nuestro Tumblr Pura pendejada en nuestro Tumblr Damas y caballeros Y pues ya saben, nuestro Twitter Arroba Superhueyes Arroba Superhueyes Y pues ya saben, escúchenos en nuestro blog Tribunalosuperhueyes.com y pues muchas gracias por escuchar. Y pues disfrútenos con leche.